following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. We're in our series, An Honest Conversation, and we're in our second and final week of, of talking about sex. If you have a Bible with you, and you might want to slide your finger into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and also into John chapter 8. If you don't, don't worry, it'll appear on the screen. Why on earth are we talking about sex in church? Well... Sex is the issue of our day. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody's impacted by it. Everyone's influenced by it, whether we think we are or not. And the absolute truth of the matter is, there are only two influences in our lives. If you're a Christian, one is the the word of God, what God says about things. And then the second influence, which everyone is influenced by, is the culture in which we live. And if we're not actively being influenced by the word of God, we will be, just passively, just because we live in this world, influenced by what the world says and by what culture says. This, the whole issue of sex, is not a secondary issue. It's not a periphery issue. It's not a special interest issue that only a few people are concerned with and bothered about. It is woven right into the heart of the gospel. And what's more, this issue of sex and sexuality and dealing with the consequences and fallout of, of, on the misery, frankly, at times of sex is a huge personal pastoral issue for every single one of us. And the truth is, particularly Christians, we are not very good at talking about sex. Actually, I'll rephrase that. We're not very good at talking honestly about sex or honestly about ourselves. We're often quite good at talking about other people and how they should and shouldn't behave and what they should and shouldn't do. One of the charges labeled at, at Christians often is that we're hypocrites. And frankly, yes, we are most of the time. So is everyone. I'm not saying it's right. Shouldn't be. We need to work hard against being hypocritical and judgmental. But one of the issues we've got to really recognize is that we are not very good at talking about this, honestly. And part of my aim in spending two weeks on this topic and addressing it from here last week and this week is is not so much what I say and what happens in the moment, but what happens next. How we end up, hopefully, my dream and my prayer is that people begin to share lives with one another way more honestly way more openly about their struggles and their issues and their pains. Because the reality is when we don't talk about it, when we're not honest, when we just try and deal with it and live with it ourselves, then we end up feeling isolated and lonely in a sense that I'm the only person going through this, dealing with this. No one, I've got no one else to share my, my pain with. And, and, and so we live in this series of isol- this sense of isolation and we think, no, no one else is like me. And the reality is, is that there are lots of people exactly like you who are going through exactly the same thing. We have all sorts of people in this church dealing with all sorts of issues sex-wise. We have people, I reeled off a big list last week, people struggling with issues to do with same-sex attraction and, and how you live that out and what you do with that. Ish, people struggling with addictions to pornography. Those who recognize it's an issue and those who kind of kidding themselves and pretending it's a not yet. It's a crippling thing. Those people who are, are dealing with the, the, the consequences of infidelity, either your own or a, or a partner's, or dealing with the, the consequences of a lack of sex in marriage that's eating your marriage apart or desperately lonely because what you're really desiring is to be able to have sex with someone in a romantic relationship but it's just not happened for you or you just and you feel that sense of 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 living loneliness with it we have all of these things whatever it is 
And we want to be a church that helps everyone understand what it means to honor God in the midst of the struggles of life, particularly in this area of sex and sexuality. This is not the only thing we talk about, but it is an important thing that we do need to talk about. And to do that, we need to be very intentional about speaking from a biblical perspective because we're not naturally going to slide towards what God says. We're naturally going to drift and slide away from the things that God says. So we need to intentionally fill ourselves with this stuff in order to move ourselves forward. And if you were not here last week and you missed it, I really want to encourage you to listen to last week because we unpacked the whole big, many of the objections that people have. Why does God care who I sleep with? That kind of thing. We looked at the whole issue of how do we define sex? It's so very important because when we're talking about sex, we're not starting in the same place. What you think sex is determines who you think it's okay gets to have it and who doesn't and so the 21st century British cultural thing that sex is between consenting adults means that as long as you're an adult however you define that as long as you're consenting then anything goes and if that's what you think sex is then it's okay for anybody but the bible doesn't land there the bible doesn't land there at all the bible is really very clear and we could try and pretend it doesn't say this and we could try and water down what we say but it's really clear the bible says god created sex it was not our invention it's his gift in the context of marriage. He loves sex in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. No other parties, no other partners, no exceptions. And, and we can try and hide from that, but we really can't. The Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament follows a, a similar, consistent, biblical sexual ethic. And a lot of people would like it to say something different, but it really doesn't. And a lot of people really struggle with what the Bible says and, and frankly hate what the Bible says. And whether they realize that or not, realize it or not, that stems from the fact that in our culture, sex is viewed as a right no one can tell you you can't have it it's the ultimate freedom it's the actually the ultimate good no one should be able to restrict you from it our culture believes underlying all of that believes you can't possibly live a fulfilled life unless you're having sex with someone and society at large and sadly also the church inadvertently has also kind of suggested that our relational needs can only be met by romantic relationships and by sex. And the Bible says, no, 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 that's not the case. The Bible says you don't need to have sex in order to have a a full and flourishing life. But the reality is, is why some people really struggle with the biblical view of sex is because the biblical view of sex, let's just be straight up front and honest about this, it rules out a lot of things. Sex within marriage, fine. Everything else, off limits. And to be honest with you, the Bible is really pretty blunt about all of this. If you've got your finger in 1 Corinthians 6, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, the young church who has all sorts of questions about sex and sexuality and, and what's permissible and what's not. And he says this, verse 9 of chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Then he starts quoting some common sayings from Corinth at the time. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. It's basically saying that when you're hungry, you eat. 
Same with sexual appetite. You feel like having sex, have sex. That was a common theme. And he says, no, 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 no. God will destroy both and one the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he, is who, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There is no holding back in the biblical view of sex. <laughs> there's no hiding, there's no pretending otherwise. And the big issue with that is, of course, that if God says sex is, it says to someone sex is to be used in this context, but not in that context, and if you're somebody now, for example, you're a single person or you're a gay person, what you hear is God says sex is okay for those people, but not for you. And actually, because of the condition of our culture, because we've been conditioned in such a way to go, you have to have sex in order to flourish, what those kind of verses you hear is I can never be a fully flourishing human being. I can never be a full human being because the thing that culture has persuaded us we need to have at all costs, romantic relationships and sex, that's being denied. That's a massive challenge. And we struggle sometimes with the whole thing of God's sexual ethics because we, can't, we might not say it like this, but we kind of believe and live and think that God is somehow kind of like a, a random toddler, like a two-year-old in deciding arbitrarily what is okay and what's not. Like my, my kids one week like this food and then the next week don't. And nothing seems to have any kind of pattern to it. It's just arbitrarily random, like it, don't like it, like it, don't like it. And we can often view God's view of sexual ethics a bit like that. You can do that, I like that, but you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. And if we come to the Bible as an arbitrary list of random prohibitations, like that's okay, that's not, then let's be honest, it's going to be really, really hard to love what he says. You think it's just a random list of stuff, you think, oh, I just struggle with that. I find that really difficult. And when we start by looking at what is said, rather than looking at and understanding who it is that's saying it, then of course we are going to be, find it really very difficult to accept what is being said. So a few days ago, if you were walking down a particular street that I was on, and you were paying attention to the, to the adult and the two children trying to cross the road, you would have witnessed an angry shout of, No! Don't do it! And taken in isolation, those words really could have been perceived as being prohibitive, angry, restrictive, controlling even. And yet if you were walking down that street at the same time, you would have looked and you would have understood that the man shouting was me, a father with his little children who are just about to step into the road into oncoming traffic. And far from being prohibitive, far from being restrictive, far from being angry or controlling words, the context of how they were spoken meant that my kids and anyone watching understood that they were designed to be good for them because they were designed to protect them and, and because I want the best for them. Now, it's a little bit of a, in many ways, a bit of a weak analogy, but when we understand that all of God's commandments 
are so linked to his character. They're not separated from them. And as we look at the Bible, as we study the word of God, as we explore who God is, and we see that he is good, and so we begin to see that his commandments are also good for those who love him. And actually, God's commandments are good for those who don't love him as well. You think of the Ten Commandments, all right, those kind of rules, if you like, for holy living, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't, don't steal, don't lie. He's not saying those things because he's a killjoy wanting to ruin our fun. He's saying those things because they're good for people and actually they're good for society. In fact, if you think about those Ten Commandments, they're pretty much the foundation of the society, a moral framework within which we live, whether you believe in God or not. They're kind of good for people. And when we understand that these, these commandments, these words are spoken from God who is our creator and also our father, when we understand that who he is is that he is more committed to our joy than we are, he's more bothered about you living the full joy-filled life than even you are, that when you recognize that he knows you better than you know yourself, you begin to think, oh, hang on, may- well, maybe... Maybe the, I don't quite work it out. It didn't quite sit instinctively with me, but maybe these are for my good. And taken arbitrarily in a culture that says sex is your right, you can't have a fulfilled life without it, no one can ever restrict you, don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do and can't be. Taken in that kind of culture, just randomly, arbitrarily, the Bible's sexual ethics are not self-evidently good at times. You can look at them and think, oh man, that's hard. How do I live like that? But David says in Psalm 19 that the commands of the Lord are radiant and his commands are radiant because he is. And when we see his commands are radiant, we begin to, through what he says, we, begins, we begin to recognize, well, this might not be easy to live by, but I see him and I understand who he is and I know he has good intentions for me and so they must be for my good. And we begin to recognize that and enjoy them as such. And when we truly recognize who God is. He's a father who loves us. He wants the best for us. He desires good for us. He wants no harm to come for us. Come to us, we begin to understand, well, hang on, these commandments, maybe they're good for us. And Christianity, to be sure, isn't about following rules and regulations. See, what ultimately separates our faith from every other one is is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if we want to understand just how committed God is to our joy, we need to turn and we need to look at Jesus. The Christian life starts with him and it flows from him. We don't say, well, I'll I'll agree with all the Bible's sexual ethics or any other topic for that matter. I'll get my head around that. I'll, I'll square that in my own heart, in my own life, in my own soul. When I'm totally convinced that they're okay, then I'll begin to follow Jesus. No, no, no. We look to Jesus first and foremost and we say, okay, I believe in you. I trust that you are God. I trust that you are good. I I trust that you have good things for me. And so I'm going to believe in what you say, even when it's difficult. And even when I don't instinctively understand, I'm just going to trust that somehow they are for my good. And so if you're looking in today and just interested on what the Bible says about sex and all that kind of stuff, I, I just want to say to you, you need to look to see who Jesus is. And what he does and what he says. And if you're a Christian, you need to remind yourself of who he is and what he says and how he acts and how he treats us. If you've got your fingers in your Bible, turn to John chapter 8. This is a really famous passage. This is a whole setup scene. The Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. They're the teachers of the law. They're trying to trick him. And let's have a look at some of the things that Jesus does and doesn't do in these verses. Verse 2, early in the morning he came again to the temple 
All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They're trying to catch him out. They're trying to trick him because if he says, oh no, you don't have to do that, then he's a heretic. He's not following the law of God. And if he says, no, stone her, then immediately that whole loving, forgiving, no condemnation thing, that's nonsense because he's just killed this woman because she deserves it because she's been caught in the act of sin. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We have no idea what he wrote, but we know what he said. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. You know, we we love to label people, we love to categorize sin. And Jesus doesn't do either of those things. In our culture, we've made sex and sexuality a huge part of our identity. We love labels. We love labeling ourselves and we love labeling others. And the Pharisees were exactly the same. They loved placing people into categories, labeling them so that they could write them off as people who didn't matter to God. They wanted Jesus to label this woman as an adulterer. That's what the Pharisees did all the time. Adulterer, sexual pervert, liar, tax tax collector, leper, no good, prostitute, foreigner, whatever it was. They frequently use labels all the time to try and separate and categorize people out. And we do it all the time in our culture as well. Sometimes negatively, like the Pharisees, we label people and we make judgments as a result. Lots of people in our culture, let's just be honest, do this positively as well. They don't see it as a negative thing. They see it as a positive thing. They identify themselves under what we might call a label. I'm straight, I'm gay, I'm bisexual. That's my identity, it's who I am. But Jesus just doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't label people as gay or lesbian or bisexual or polysexual or straight or married or single. We love to find our identity in our labels, but biblically speaking, the only label over your life is that you are either what the Bible describes as in Adam or you're in Christ. That is, you're either dead in your sin or you're made alive with Christ. Go back to 1 Corinthians 6 for a moment, verse 9. All of us at one time were unrighteous. All of us. We were all dead in our sin. Theologically speaking, we were in Adam. That means we are spiritually dead. It means we were cut off from the spiritual life in God. Since the fall, way back in Genesis, all God's human creatures, all humans, stand condemned as sinners. We all stand under the wrath of God. We've all sinned. Now, we, of course, love to rank sin. We love to categorize sin. Some sins are worse than other sins. So that list, sexual immorality, bad. Greed, not so much. We won't talk about that. But in 1 Corinthians 6, they all stand in exactly the same category. 
Jesus doesn't place sexual sin in a separate category and neither should we. Now let's just be clear. There is obviously some sins that have more deadly consequences than others. So I could get Dio to stand up right now and spit in his face and it's sinful. My attitude and the hatred in my heart in order to spit in his face, sinful, condemned by God. If I pull a gun out and shoot him in the head, equally sinful, has slightly more deadly consequences. Certain sins carry with them more weight. And sexual sins, let's just be really clear on that, do carry a greater weight to them because they involve your body in union with another person. And there are consequences to our actions that we will have to deal with. There is mess and junk that God's desire for is they prohibit you from getting in that because he doesn't want you to get into that mess and that junk. He doesn't want to have to unpick those things and cause you to carry those things for the rest of your life. But we love to say sexual sin is terrible, greedy, gluttonous people. Well, yeah, it's not ideal, but no, no, no. Sin, 1 Corinthians 6 style, is in that category. Now, certain things carry more weight, but it's still fundamentally sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 tells us. And we need to get it out of our head that some sins are more acceptable than others because they're really not. But God, in his grace, has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son on the cross. And so those who come under the power of the cross now experience redemption from sin. It means redemption from sins means we're made clean. We are purified. We are literally washed. Though our sins were like scarlet, he has washed us whiter than snow. It's like we're now made completely righteous and perfect. And this redemption is experienced in this life, but it will be made complete at the resurrection. That basically means at the end of time, when Jesus returns or we die, if you're in Christ, there is a day coming when you'll no longer face any sin. You will have an incorruptible, perfect resurrection body. There'll be no more sin for you to be tempted with. There'll be no more uh, effects of sin. There'll be no more consequences of sin. But we're not there yet. We're still here. And so while we're still in this earth, we remain with having these particular temptations and weaknesses that we have to deal with. And despite all of those things, we are still no longer counted as sinners, but now as as righteous. And so the implication of that is that those who have put their trust in Jesus, no matter what you wrestle with, temptation-wise, whether that's sexual things or other things, you are no more a sinner than any other believer who has their own particular demons to face. We all have things that we need to face and wrestle with, temptations and struggles and pain and issues, and we need to get away from ranking and going, that's a good temptation and struggle, and that's a bad one. No, 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 they're here. And so rather than labeling people, gay, straight, whatever, it's theologically more accurate to recognize that every single one of us is broken and junked up. Every single one of us is bent out of shape. Every single one of us is is crooked in some way. And it's only the grace of God in Jesus Christ that can bring us to wholeness. We are not defined by our sexual orientation. That's a controversial thing to say in this day and age. It's who I am. I'm made like this. It's who I am. And I just push back very gently on that and say, no, 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 it's not. You're a child of God made in his image. Gender will last for eternity. Sexuality won't. Sexual feelings and sexuality is for this age. It's earthbound. There's no sex in heaven, so there's no issues of sexuality or anything in heaven. Gender will last eternally. 
And we're to find, in our, uh, find our identity, not in those things that won't last forever, but in those things that will. We're created in the image of God, male and female. And for us as believers, our identity is not in any of those things. Our identity is fully and firmly in Jesus Christ because we're a redeemed people. And we're a redeemed people because Jesus doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. This whole scenario is, is a setup to get Jesus to either be soft on sin and say it doesn't really matter or to condemn people. And he doesn't do either. This woman is guilty. She's been caught in adultery. There's no doubt about that. And the Pharisees use this to try and trick Jesus. And he isn't caught out at all. He publicly affirms the law of Moses. He says, yeah, you're right. She is guilty. He completely backs up the Old Testament law that said she deserves to get stoned. He's in effect, he says, yeah, go for it. Stone her. But only if you haven't sinned first. And that verse is a direct relation, but... Direct reference back to Deuteronomy 13 and 17, which in the Old Testament law stated that the witnesses of the crime must be the first to throw the stones, but they must not have participated in the crime itself. And he's not saying that only sinless, perfect people can ever say to someone else, I don't think you should be living like that. We often get that wrong. We have to go, who are you to judge? You should never tell me anything. No, 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 that's not what's being said here. What he means is that person mustn't be guilty of that particular sin. They mustn't have participated in that particular crime. And so Jesus' words cut through the double standards, the absolute hypocrisy of these men, and he gets right underneath. They've either been guilty of participating in sexual sin themselves in some way, or they've participated in this case in order to trap the woman don't forget the bloke that was involved and he's not mentioned they've let him run off because they're trying to use it to trap Jesus and Jesus says let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at her and one by one they slink away why because who are they to judge they just like us have been, might not have been caught in adultery, might not have been caught in looking at pornography, might not have been caught fantasizing about having sex with someone else, whatever it might be. But they're still guilty. I'll just be really clear here. Christians and the church have not always done very well on this. This judgmental thing, particularly towards gay people. And when we point the finger at other people and their sins, we are as utterly ridiculous as the Pharisees in this situation. See, none of us are sexually sinless. We have no right to be judgmental. We have no right to, to be self-righteous and think we're better than others because every single one of us has fallen short and every single one of us has fallen short sexually. And Jesus doesn't do what they want him to do. Jesus publicly affirms the Old Testament he publicly affirms all of his teachings on sexual ethics. People try and say Jesus was never like that. No, he was. Matthew 19, read it. He publicly affirms everything the Old Testament teaches on marriage and, and sex being in the place of marriage. He's, but he's not soft on sin. But nor does he treat us as our sins deserve. Verse 10 and 11, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, no Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. This is right at the heart of Christianity. This is right at the heart of the gospel. This absolute stunning beauty of it all. Yes, you are guilty, but I don't condemn you. And he doesn't condemn us because he took the punishment for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And 
but by his stripes we're healed. He's the one who took the punishment. The Bible's really clear on this. Sex outside of marriage full stop is serious. There's no question of this woman's guilt. Jesus doesn't pretend that she hasn't done anything wrong. She has, but he still does not condemn her because the Bible is really clear that messing up in this area is not the end of the road. Some people think that sexual sin somehow writes them off forever, although somehow uh, sexual sin means that they are now second-class Christians. I even heard someone once say, in fully intentional, fully kind of with every good intention, that if you have sinned sexually, that puts a limit on where you can grow in God and where you can progress in the life of the church. Such, I wanted to throw something at him. I wanted to punch him in the face and say, you hypocrite, how do you not see that you are just as guilty as everybody else in this thing? There's no second-class Christians in any of this thing. Yes, sexual sin is serious, but it's nowhere near the end of the story. How do I know that? Because God himself goes out of his way in Matthew chapter 1. If you've ever read Matthew chapter 1, it's just a list of names and you think, what on earth is this here for? It's there because it's the chronology of Jesus' life. And right in the middle of it, you see that Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute is in the list. We see Tamar, who's been involved in an incestuous relationship. She, they're in the list. In the family line of Jesus, God goes out of his way to make it absolutely clear that in the family of God, in the family physical line of Jesus, there are prostitutes, there are sexual sinners, there are people who are messed up and junked up just like you and just like me. He goes out of his way. And so if there's anybody here today, because I'm just too bruised sexually to come to him, no, you are not. You need to understand that he is waiting for you. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. No one is too broken. No one is too messed up. No one is too junked up. No one is too far from his grace, his mercy. Come to him. He's waiting for you. There really is no condemnation. It's truly remarkable that the the embodiment of the divine holiness of God, God himself in human form, Jesus Christ, walking on the earth. It's truly remarkable that he who is perfect and holy and so perfectly pure and so perfectly other, so much so that even in Isaiah 6, when the angels see him, they have to hide their face so other and holy and perfect is him. It's incredible that that God who is so like that should come and say to a self-confessed sinner who has broken the law and who is heavy with the guilt of it, neither do I condemn you. That's the miracle of the grace of God. Jesus performed all sorts of wonderful miracles, wore into wine, all sorts of cool things, healed the sick, raised the dead. None of them even put together remotely come close to how much miraculous this is that Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. All of our hope for salvation forevermore is found in this sentence, a sentence that in order to truly live, you need to truly believe. So many of us struggle to fully accept and live in the free and forever grace of Jesus Christ. Our default setting for many of us is that we just struggle with this. We live somehow believing that God in some way, shape or form is disappointed or frustrated with us. That that somehow, yes, he might have saved me, but I'm so messed up and I'm so rubbish at this that really all he's doing is just tolerating me at best. He just allows me to slide in and sneak in and stand at the back. No, 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 no. Listen, get what no condemnation really means. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you are if you are a Christian here today, he chose you before the world began 
that you should be considered pure and holy and blameless before him. If you're a Christian here today, that is exactly what you are. If you're not a Christian here today, that is exactly what you can be. And you can say, well, you don't know what I struggle with. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't know all the different things that I've done that I'm doing right now. Listen, I know this. He's paid the bill in full. And so frankly, I say this in love to you. You are speaking nonsense. He loves you. He delights in you. It doesn't matter what you have done. It only matters what Jesus did for you. And the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he doesn't condemn you. He forgives you and he loves you and he restores you and he makes you beautiful and blameless and perfect in his sight. No condemnation. All your sins are fully forgiven. You have nothing to hide, nothing to fear. All past sin, done. All present sin, done. All future sin, he's got that covered. None of it has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. You are fully forgiven. And here's what that means. It means your salvation wasn't just a past event, but even now Jesus Christ is continuing to save you. He didn't forgive your past sins and is now leaving it up to you to conquer all your present and future sins. He paid for it all. You are fully forgiven and you're freely forgiven as well. It's all a gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Living a real good moralistic life is not going to make any difference to it. He's not suddenly going to go, okay, you've done really well for 15 years. Now I'll pour out my grace on you. He gives it you freely. And listen to this. So many Christians feel guilt on this one. They get that they are forgiven, but then they mess up. They sin. They have sex with someone they shouldn't. They fantasize about something they shouldn't. They look at pornography. They do any, any of the list of 1 Corinthians 6. They know they shouldn't, and they feel real guilty about it. Hear this. In those moments, he does not regret saving you. He is not looking at you mess up and thinking, oh man, I made a mistake there. I didn't see that working out like that. I saved them. I thought they'd be really great for the rest of their life. I just, that, I missed that. No, no, no. He does not regret saving you, but he does say, go and sin no more. God hates sin. But pursuing holiness without a profound experience and understanding of the grace of God in your life and the implications of that just cause you to run around like a headless chicken trying to be really good the whole time. You can't do it until you've got an experience and a profound experience and understanding of the grace of God which covers you entirely and declares you to be steadfast and perfect and blameless in his sight. And when we live in the fullness of his forgiveness and we believe that we're forgiven and then we obey his commands and all the things that he says and we turn away from our sin and we deny ourselves and we say, God, I trust that what you say is good for me so I'm going to go for it. We realize then that we get a blessing out of obedience. See, sin is like a millstone that's tied around our neck. It just pulls us down. It beats us up. It causes us to not live in the freedom that Jesus Christ has won for us. It destroys the soul. It hardens the heart. And sin, frankly, is our preference for anything other than God. But there are profound implications when we turn from that and we turn to him. And for some of us, just end with this, some of the implications for us are that First thing really is that we need to believe that God really is more committed to our joy than we are. We need to really believe that he is more passionate about you living this joy-filled life than you are and that he asks us sometimes to do things and not do things that sometimes to us feel like death but actually because he loves us and he knows what's best for us, they actually lead us to life. 
There will be times that Jesus will say things to you that you don't want to hear and ask you to do things that you don't want to do. But Jesus just kind of assumes that people who leave, who follow him will have to leave behind all sorts of relational and familiar ties. Read Mark 10. What, they ha- what you have to lay down and sacrifice to follow Jesus isn't just your sex life, it's everything. But Jesus promises that we will get back so much more even in this life. And we recognize then that the Bible's sexual ethics are part and parcel of the Bible's goodness and the Bible's truth and the Bible's beauty. And, the, and to be honest, the Bible's realistic understanding that we are not good if we simply do like what we want and how we feel. Jeremiah 17 says, sin is edged in a diamond knife on our hearts. Just broken by it. It busts us up. And, and even if we don't feel broken by it, well, the other extreme, John 3.19 says that we love the darkness. We love our sin. We wouldn't do it if we didn't enjoy it. That's why we need not only the Bible's good news, but the power and the might of, of Jesus Christ and his love and his union with us that allows us to stand apart because left to ourselves, frankly, we're dangerous. Left to my own devices, I am not going to pursue the things of God. I'm going to go running by myself. The Bible's really realistic about that. And it doesn't pull any punches about it either. And it reminds us that we are image bearers of a holy God. And in order to live out that holy lives, those holy ways in which we're supposed to live, in all righteousness, in all beauty, in all goodness, we need God to intervene and praise God he has. And we need to turn to him. And the second implication of everything I talked about last week and everything I'm talking about today is we need to recognize that when he saved us, he placed us into a family. Not a nuclear family, but the family, the church, the people of God. And a functioning family, not like you're messed up one at home, a functioning family is a place where love is displayed and expressed so clearly and powerfully that talking about these things and our struggles and our issues is so very, very normal because we love each other and we have a culture of authenticity and honesty that we should feel that we are able to and we should be able to share our struggles, share our weaknesses, share our pain without any fear of condemnation because if condemnation is not put on us by God then it should not be put on us by anyone else and we have a responsibility to live in such a way and share our lives in such a way that we can be totally honest so I have a struggle with this I have an addiction to that I'm wrestling with this and that should be treated and met with this I'm so glad you've shared that let us walk this journey together Tim Keller says about church he has this wonderful description he says church should be like a doctor's waiting room not a waiting room for an interview. And in waiting room for an interview, if you ever sat there, other candidates, everyone's looking, they're doing their best to look competent, look amazing, look really cool, look like I, I'm the best, I've got it all sorted, I'm sorted compared to all these people. You go to a doctor's waiting room and you just assume everybody else is sick and needs some help. And that's the picture of a church. We're not sitting there pretending that everything's sorted and we're all quality. We're sitting there going, I, I'm, my sickness is this. My issue is that. I need help with this. What's yours? Because I assume we're in the same place. If you're looking in and thinking, all these people are perfect, look a little bit harder because we're really, really not. We're just all people sick, needing help, needing broken people, needing the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And, and here's where this kicks in big time for us, and we need to get so much better at this. A fully functioning family that God designs needs to be a, a place where all the relational needs are met for people who are married and for people who are single, which means sacrifices are probably going to need to be made, particularly if you're a married person in order to build a place and a context and a home and a family life that single people feel fully flourishing in as well. 
I want to build a church that says these things, that you don't need to have sex and romantic relationships in order to be fulfilled. Well, we need to live it out. And part of the living it out is being the answer to some of those things, opening our homes, opening our lives, sharing with other people. Our culture says you have to have a full and thriving life. You have to have sex. And the Bible says, no, you don't. And so part of the implications for us is it's up to us to find the friendship and to provide the friendship and the relational needs that single people and people of same-sex attracted and everything else need and have. It's up to us to provide a context where people who are married and people who are single can be honest about it and wrapped around and encouraged and brought in and, and come into that place of full life. See, ultimately, these things are become easier. They're never easy. I'm not kidding myself. These become easier as we stick close to Jesus. Life is far, far better when he's at the center and it's far, far worse when anyone or anything else is. And that's ultimately the promise of the gospel. We don't get perfection. We don't get everything working out really nicely and neatly for us. We get something better. We get Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Okay.